0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. According to a
1: recent study by IBM, creativity was selected as the most crucial factor for future success. In fact, to quote the study, which was a survey of more than 1,500 CEOs from 60 countries, chief executive officers believe that more than rigor, management discipline, integrity, or even vision, successfully navigating an increasingly complex world will require creativity. So how are you nurturing your creativity? Besides listening to this show, join us for the first ever Smart People Podcast Mastermind Webinar. In this webinar, former Advertising Senior Executive Dave Burse will be telling you the top six ways to Anyone can become more creative. So head on over to smartpeoplepodcast.com slash BIRSS, and sign up today for the webinar on March 24th. Again, that's smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here, and thank you for joining us for another episode. Excited to bring this one to you today with our guest, David Berkus. So what are we talking about today? Well, it just so turns out, David Berkus, excuse me, Dr. David Berkus is an associate professor of management at Oral Roberts University, a regular contributor to the Harvard Business Review, Forbes, Bloomberg, etc., and a popular corporate speaker. He is perhaps best known for his recent book, The Myths of Creativity, The Truth About How Innovative Companies Generate Great Ideas. However, today, we are probably the first interview airing with him about his brand new book, Under New Management, How Leading Organizations Are Upending Business as Usual. You see, the old rules of business no longer apply. And that's what we're talking about. Drawing on decades of research, David has found that not only are many of our fundamental management practices wrong and misguided, but they can be downright counterproductive. And these days, the best companies are breaking all of these rules. So, for example, at some companies, email is restricted to certain hours so that employees can work without distraction. Netflix, for example, they no longer have a standard vacation policy of two to three weeks but they instruct employees to take time off when they feel they need it. So in this episode, David explains why companies are leaving behind decades-old management practices and implementing new ways to enhance productivity and morale. Again, his new book is Under New Management, How Leading Organizations Are Upending Business As Usual. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with David, so I'm going to turn it over to him. We mentioned it in the pre-roll, but guys, it's almost time. We are 11 days away from a free, awesome webinar with Q&A with a former ad executive, creativity expert, TED speaker, author, Dave Burse. To reserve your spot, go to smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Burse, B-I-R-S-S, right now. Spots are running out because we've been signing people up for a week. So I just want to make sure you get in and learn the top six ways you can be more creative. And also in that webinar, we are going to be explaining the incredible things we're offering in this mastermind. And keep in mind, right? Like this type of stuff is what companies pay thousands of dollars for. Yes, it's in person, but you're getting this one for free. So again, go to smartpeoplepodcast.com slash B-I-R-S-S, and join us march 24th at 1 p.m eastern standard time and learn how to be creative all right let's get into this interview with david Burkis on how leading organizations are upending business as usual enjoy All right, David. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I know to the listeners, uh, we've been talking for about 20 minutes. We have some good stuff, but I'm going to use that knowledge to pull out as much as I can in the next 35 minutes for them. So again, David, thank you for bestowing your wisdom upon us.
2: Oh, no, I'm happy. Thank you for having me. And yeah, I, I kept thinking a couple of times when we were talking right before hitting record that maybe we should be hitting record now. But I, oh, well,
1: I know. And you never, you never know, but, uh, but I appreciate that. So You know, today I really want to talk about your brand new book, Under New Management, for a number of reasons. And as we typically do on the show, I like to get a little bit of background. So, you know, now that you're speaking, writing, all that good stuff, where did it start? You know, and and specifically, I mean, you are a podcaster. You are a podcaster. So I always like that. So give me the background.
2: Yeah. So um I started a podcast because I wanted uh, smart people to talk to me. (laughs) Sounds
1: sounds, (laughs) – man, we're like long-lost brothers. (laughs) Uh,
2: No. So I I graduated university and uh, got a job actually in the pharmaceutical industry. I carried a bag for a drug company. I I was that well-dressed guy who was sitting in the waiting room and got to talk to your doctor before you. Um, And I did that for about five years. Most of the time while I did that, I was also in graduate school. So I uh, at first did a master's degree and then later started a doctoral program because I had found out – my undergraduate major was in writing. But I found out that my actual interest was in writing about social science and organizational psychology. And so – I went to graduate school for that um, before you like went crazy. Like I was married that entire time, but my wife was a med student, so um, I would work forty hours a week and then go to grad school for twenty hours a week, and still have like twenty hours a week to kill before she got home from studying. Wow! Um, so we did all of that and. I Because she was in medical school, I had to choose what doctoral program I went to carefully. Like there's, there's basically two types of of doctoral programs. You either have the indentured servant model where you're a research assistant or you teach freshman classes while you're doing your research, et cetera. Um, and you get the the degree for free but you have to do all this sort of indentured servanthood for like four years or – um, there are ones that are set up more for sort of working professionals, end-of-year career people who uh, and – end-of-career people who want to transition into consulting or that type of thing. And so that was the type that I basically had to do and had to pay it myself because I couldn't move because I had a, a wife in medical school and we couldn't right. just upro- uproot her promising career for my crazy idea. <laughs> um, so we, so we so i'm sitting in the very first class of the you know or the very the very first class session of the very first course of my doctoral program and i look around the room and everybody is 20 to 30 years older than me right really and and all yeah cuz i'm you know 25 at this point and everybody else is between 45 and 55 there's there was one other person who this i feel really guilty saying this who was also in her 20s but you wouldn't know it um, until she said it.
1: hopefully um, she's not listening
2: no i, I sincerely hope she, and i hope she doesn't know who she is even if she is listening she might <laughs> it's so mean oh i apologize in advance um but no, I mean I didn't know. So I'm I'm looking at this room and I'm, everybody's old. I mean, everybody has careers for you know the big auto industry companies or tech companies or a lot actually a lot of people from who worked in the government sector for forever and were transitioning into more consulting type roles and and using this doctorate as a means to gain knowledge but also to gain sort of the credibility that would power their you know, their ability to hang a shingle on the door and be a consultant. And I'm looking around the room and I'm like, I got nothing. Like I mean I literally I introduced myself to all of these executives of Fortune five hundred companies in this PhD as hi, my name's Dave and I sell drugs out of the back of my car. And see
1: that makes you different. You know <laughs> well, it's no like- I mean
2: <laughs> We laughed, and we got a lot of um i you know i actually- I actually sort of got a guy who was transitioning out of the auto industry that was like, "You remind me of my son, and we still communicated and he's been an amazing uh resource for me basically um but but I walked away from that from i'm driving home like you know from that first course, and I'm realizing like i gotta do something because when I get done with this thing i got n- I have no plan whatsoever for how i'm gonna do this dream thing and so I basically started a podcast. Uh, I w- This was right when like Gary Vaynerchuk's Crush It came out and uh, right when like the four-hour work week came out. And somehow I meshed those two ideas together and got this crazy idea that like I'm going to talk to people who write the books I love to read and hope to write one day. And then I'm going to record myself talking to them and I'm going to hope that people want to listen to that. And then as they do, I'll, I'll maybe hopefully build a platform from which I can start doing this uh, myself. And it was this... Uh, it was a crazy idea, but it actually worked. And I, you know, now I, I sort of, I wake up every day and I'm like, I can't believe that worked. Uh, in, and now I should say, in the meantime, as I, as I, um, for a bunch of different interesting life reasons, I got a phone call as I was in the midst of my doctoral program at, from the university that I went to undergrad in asking basically like so-and-so just surprised us with the announcement that he was retiring. Would you be interested in teaching classes? And so I've been there for, uh, I've been here for five years now, sort of, I like, I like to say that I moonlight as an academic, but what I really do is write books and speak about organizational psychology and social science and the implications for, um, how we work and how we live. And, um, yeah, that's so that's like the really short version of how we all got here. But it all started with, uh, with a podcast that was literally me on a conference call line with people and wow. recording conversations with them and then trying to figure out how GarageBand worked and sending it to iTunes.
1: <laughs> that's, yeah, that's funny. Just because I'm like reliving my, myself, there's two things there. I mean, there's so many things there. The first one is thank you for telling that story, but also at the same time, no thank you for making me feel a little bit worse about my life because I feel like we came to the same realization around the same time about five I don't know what that was maybe 2010 ish um, when when we started ours and it sounds like around when you started yours um, and you kind of did it and I'm still figuring <laughs> out like it, I don't know I'm trying to cling to whatever I have maybe it's like no what I got's a good
2: thing but uh,
1: but congratulations on that it, well, it really so is cool
2: so, so let me let me let me pause here because that, that by the way, um, that will never go away. Yeah. One, of, one, of the, one of the uniform things that I see in almost everyone who is making an impact in whatever realm they want to make an impact in, and, I, and by the way, I have no data other than anecdotes to support this, so the academic in me is, is mad that I'm saying this, but it's just something I've noticed among achievers, among thought leaders, among people who are influencing their realm, is that they are always simultaneously gracious for where they are and frustrated they're not further along. <laughs> And, I mean, I, so, you, you know, you say that to me and that's all nice and and, and I appreciate it. But I, I could name the people who I look at enviously because I feel like I should be that far along and I'm not yet, right? Yeah, so yeah. that will – I don't know that that will ever go away and it's the sort of – it's a, there's a sweet spot I think in the middle that drives you to keep performing but lets you take the time to appreciate what you have enough. Um, I don't know that I hit that sweet spot except for fleeting moments throughout the week.
1: Well, yeah, and and I appreciate that. That's true. You know, the old imposter syndrome. So the other thing that struck me about what you were saying there is almost what sounded like a little bit of blind faith, you know, a little bit of this is what I want to do and I'm going to do it and figure it out kind of as I go um, to to be working and to, you know, have a wife and then to be doing your uh, your doctoral program, which all of that, just the time involved. On kind of this dream of becoming an author and a speaker and all that, which is not the easiest thing in the world, uh, how did you deal with the uncertainty?
2: <laughs> um, you're going to hate this answer. Oh man, I didn't have any. Yep, um, I hate that. I answer. mean that, that's that sounds. See so, you later, Dave. That, I know, right? <laughs> that That's so arrogant, and I hate that I'm saying this, but like, no, I I I always knew it was going to work, right? And and here's why. Because my previous job was pharma and if you don't know anything about the pharma sales world, right, th- You, if you work – the minute you get a job in the pharmaceutical industry, you suddenly have tons of friends because there are all sorts of other people who work in sales and are trying to work in pharmaceutical or medical device sales, <laughs> right? Yes. And what and, – and then – and but, but that number is actually half of the number of people who will go, oh, yeah, I tried to get a pharma job once. Whew, they're really picky like and and what that really means is I applied at a few places and I gave up, yep. right yep. but once you sort of hit it, like you you realize that everybody who wants to get a job in that industry will one day do it the 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 only thing that separates the people from the, who got it from people who didn't is they didn't quit right yep. mm-hmm. and so, in the same way, like again, I apologize at how weird it sounds with like no, I always believed it, but I always believed that if I just kept doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it, it would one day pay off, right? Because I had already done that once in my career. Now, I'll admit, like, I probably thought it was going to take a lot longer, but it was like, what else was I going to do? I was dissatisfied in the pharma gig that I had, Mm -hmm. right? The whole reason I was in grad school was for, like, need of intellectual stimulation outside of work, Mm -hmm. right? Mm Mm-hmm. And so if all of this ever was, was a way to sort of scratch that intellectual stimulation itch then I was content with that. But I always had faith that like, no, it will build momentum even if it builds it incredibly slowly. Yeah. And so, you know, I was, I was always hungry for it for sure. But I was always confident that like you, you do the right things and the right things happen to you.
1: It's a good point. I mean, it, it, I think really what that highlights for me isn't so much like it's not arrogance. It's not, it's, you know, it's a certainty, but it's really just the faith in your own abilities and, stick to I mean honestly that's what it comes down to. And well and you know yeah.
2: And and so um there's a researcher named Paul Torrance he's uh, he's passed away now but he was one of the foremost researchers in creativity particularly creativity in children and he sees this really cool thing. He did a bunch of different studies where he followed. There are still people following the kids that he started following and doing research on. And one of the things he found was that – and maybe, I, maybe this is why I didn't have any doubt but, and, and I learned this in grad school. One of the things he found was that the people who became creative achievers who actually sort of hit their potential and had the career success that they had, they only had sort of one thing in common and that was that they fell in – this is his words. They fell in love with a future version of themselves. They fell in love with a future version of self, and that that was what I think it was for me. It was like i was I was interviewing these people who I sort of idolized, but I fell in love with the vision of me being able to make that contribution too. And that just keeps you going and, and when you have that because that's – I mean love transcends reason, right? So when you have that, you don't have any doubt anymore because you've so sort of fallen in love with that idea. And by the way, you sound a lot like this. When we were recording – again, I feel bad we didn't hit record before but when we were talking before the recording, you sound like that. You know what you sort of want to do moving forward, what you want to do with the podcast, et cetera. And I would, I would say you are in love with the, that future version of yourself. And I think the same thing for the type of people that listen to this show. You, you can't want uh, intellectual stimulation like this podcast and not have some future vision of yourself that you're in love with, and that's what keeps you sort of driving towards that.
1: Wow. I, I really think uh, you hit the nail on the head for, for listeners, for this show, for what it's about. And as you know, this is a good spot to mention. Um, you're gonna do one of our masterminds for us, correct? One of our sure. one yes. of our presentations. Yes. yes, I know yes. you got a lot going on with the book launch, but
2: no, <laughs> yes. no, about don't, no. I mean, sorry. The, 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 I have like the, I'm looking at the book launch. I'm like, okay, that day, and then I don't remember what happens after that day. Don't worry, yes, no. We're doing, that. I remember that now.
1: And that is the premise. I mean, the premise is: look, if you listen to the show, you're a little weird, and a little weird in the sense that if you just wanted some cool interviews. There's a hundred shows, but this is a little niche and it's, you know, I don't really ask questions the way I'm supposed to and all that, but you want to be something different somehow through education, intellect, creativity. And that's why we have guests like you and we're going to do this mastermind. So it was just a perfect place for me to mention and say like, that's my goal with this audience and falling in love with the future version of yourself. Such a great image. I want to ask you one last thing. We're going to dive into your book here, but uh, I recently heard Ramit Sethi or Sethi, I can never get his name right. You know that I will teach you to
2: be rich guy. Yeah, I I think it's Sethi, but don't quote me on that. I've I've never met him either. So So
1: I recently heard him verbalize a concern I've had for a long time. And that is if your goal is to be a, whatever you want to call it, thought leader, uh, speaker, writer, get your thoughts into the world doesn't that require some level of self-righteousness or or narcissism narcissism thank you some (laughs) sort of narcissism and i really struggle with that because in my head i think yeah i got great stuff great stuff i'm going to change people's lives but then i go yeah well why listen to me
2: (sighs) did you ever run into that Oh no, it does, and and I'm always on the lookout for that. And it's one of the reasons, even earlier, I said like, oh, I just said that thing, and I'm now I'm worried about it coming off as, as arrogant <laughs> because it, because here's the secret: it is kind of a little arrogant, right? Okay. Like, <laughs> um, and I think you need that because honestly, like, I, I don't know this this is this is nothing to do with either book, no. But this is just life experience. Like when when you're falling in love with a future version of yourself and you pursue it, people are going to kick you in the face. <laughs> Right, and, and the only way that you move forward when you do that is if you believe that those people are evil, and that's why they're kicking you in the face, and you're going to find the people that don't want to kick you in the face. Yes, and you're going to gravitate towards them, and that takes a level of. of I mean, we could we could we could call it the the fancy researcher term called and call it self efficacy and self esteem, et cetera. But but self too much self esteem is what we call narcissism, and and I think honestly you need that level of belief because you you have to believe that either a Oh, actually, both. A, you've got something to say, and B, they need to hear it, and it's the only thing that keeps you going when you're blocking head kicks.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yes. So the way you got it, you you got through that. Call it. That's just natural inclination. You were just like, this is good. This is gonna be good. People are gonna like it, and that's it. I'm certain. Boom. We're going.
2: I mean, uh, the other thing is that like I liked it right? Like, here's, so this is the thing that I talk about in, in the myth of creativity, but it's, I call it the, um, the originality myth. Like we think that people's ideas are wholly original. No, every idea is a combination of pre-existing ideas. Music is kind of intellectually honest because you can ask a, a musician or recording artist, who are your influences and what that literally means or who are the people you listen to and try and emulate and you've created your own, your voice is actually a unique combination of all their voices. Mm. I was the same way. Like I can, I can tell you, Malcolm Gladwell, Daniel Pink, Chip and Dan Heath, these are the people whose books I read and and Adam Grant, these are the people whose books I read and salivate over because they blend research and practice so well. That's what I want to do. And their success is proof of concept for me that there's there's sort of a market for it, right? Um, Now – I think everybody needs a realistic appraisal of what their sort of market is right if If you only really love i mean they're they're actually super popular right now, but they won't be in a month or two. if you really really love adult coloring books and your dream is to create adult coloring books like that's great, but realize the limits of your industry right it just so happens in my case like there's there's enough people who who want to read those types of books and be influenced by those types of ideas that one more voice to it isn't going to sort of ruin it right
1: right right so
2: it it varies on that but like if you're i mean it's called the smart people podcast you interview mm-hmm. smart people in the hopes of becoming one of them <laughs> one day right and the fact that that everybody is listening to you and i talk is proof of concept that there are people who who are interested in this stuff so mm-hmm. You just, you, you have to end up sort of focusing on that, taking a realistic appraisal of like, this is the level of success that my influences have had. Right. And, and I don't know that I'll ever get to their level. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Right. But I can, I can at least carve a pretty nice niche for myself inside of that broader thing because there's clearly an audience there. I'm a member of that audience. Mm.
1: Yeah. That's really great. I really appreciate that. And, and I want to segue into your book because these are the types of conversations and rabbit holes I'll go down for three hours, but that's not, you know, maybe, maybe for another show,
2: but really, you know, we should, we'll do two episodes, the under new management episode and the people are going to kick you in the face episode. You know
1: know what? I'm going to title it that. So here's the thing. Under new management, how leading organizations are upending business as usual. Here's why I love it. Because I effing hate business as usual. I, I mean, it's just true. I worked. Everybody knows this in the finance industry for about five or six years, suffered like really bad anxiety just because of what business as usual is. And so your book just jumped out to me and things like the, the TED talk you did, the TEDx talk about, you know, not telling our salaries like I don't I don't understand that world. Anyone who has ever asked me anything, how much did your house cost? How much is your car? How much do you make? I'm like this much, this much that I don't care. So that's what jumped out to me about all this. What made you want to put this information about new management, new organizations into the world?
2: So, I mean, for starters, that, right? Like I I worked at a a knowledge work company, pharmaceuticals, that ran on these sort of old school Frederick Taylor scientific management type ideas because every big organization does that. And then what's what's funny actually to me, I've, I've noticed this over time is those sort of old business as usual ideas drive people to go start their own company. And then once that company has any level of scale, they go, oh crap, we need systems. And the only systems they know how to do are those old Old ones. Old business, I know, I know. So what I I was really interested in is is you see, you know, right after Missive Creativity came out and I wrote about a few companies that are doing things a little bit differently in order to bring out the creativity and innovation in their people, right? So that was on my radar. And I'm getting emails from readers and I'm, I'm reading, you know, Business publications like Fast Company and Inc. and Business Insider and all these places and I'm reading about these companies that do things sort of differently, right? But alongside of that, I have all of my training in organizational psychology and I'm seeing some of these like the salary transparency one. You know, I I read an article that is in effect like this company lets everybody know what everybody gets paid. Isn't that crazy? And I go – well, no, there was this guy named John Stacy Adams in the 1960s who wrote this thing called equity theory that theorized that people are always making salary comparisons. And mm-hmm. when they don't have information, they're going to make the wrong comparisons. They're going to be more likely to be dissatisfied. And so, you know, and, and that the equity theory has been we've spent 50 years researching mm-hmm. and proving it. <laughs> and so the only logical solution to resolving that tension is to just let everybody know. So and, and in each of the chapters, that's basically kind of what happened is I'm I'm reading these about these companies and sometimes you know, meeting the, the founders of these companies that are departing from business as usual and I'm seeing them through that lens and going, no, these, these ideas are more than just kind of like a, a crazy clickbait article on Fast Company. These are, are solid based in research more so than business as usual because business as usual was, is, is a management invent- invention built for a different era. Right. It was. was, And Daniel Pink rightly pointed this out in drive that like motivation systems were designed for the industrial economy and in the knowledge work economy, they don't work. That transition happened everywhere, not just in incentives. And that's really what this sort of book is about is what are the other things that need to change because we've made that shift? And what are the changes that are already being made that are in line with research into human psychology and behavior and what a knowledge work economy should look like?
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And knowledge work economy is something that Legitimately, I speak on almost weekly. That is what we cover with Franklin Covey. I mean, that's what people are learning. There's there's no systems. And, you know, there's so much opportunity, but without the right systems, it's just difficult. I could not contain my excitement when I read about the customer isn't always right. And, <laughs> and here's why. Because literally people have lost their mind. They're like, you know, a box gets shipped from China and... It's dented, just the box, not even the product inside is dented. And they're like, I'm going to send the shit back. And I'm like, and then, and then companies take it. And that's just crazy to me. That's that, that is something that really sticks with me. Tell us about that. Like what is the old management and then who is doing it right and why
2: now? So I, I mean, With respect to the crazy customers, like I'm not necessarily worried about that unless this happens. And this happens way too often in the customer is always right mentality, which is the guy on the other end of the phone who's trying to make that customer happy that fails to do so and then gets thrown under the bus by their management um, or someone else. And and in order to make – when that customer appeals to, you know, I'm going to call your supervisor and the supervisor throws that employee under the bus in order to satisfy the customer, now we have a problem, Right. Because what uh, what a lot of companies have realized, and my favorite example of this is uh, Vinet year calls it the value zone, but that's that that customer satisfaction happens based on interactions with that front line of people, right? The CFO does not affect customer satisfaction, right? The chief marketing officer doesn't – the people who are interacting and who are the face of a company are the ones that affect customer satisfaction. We know that that customer satisfaction predicts profitability, right? The more loyal your customers are – I mean look at like Apple for example. Mm -hmm. The more loyal your customers are, the more profitable your business can afford to to be. But the only way you get that is if you empower those people in the value zone to take care of the customer. And so the only way you can get – the top tier level of customer satisfaction isn't by putting customers first. It's by putting the employees that serve customers first, mm. letting them know you got their back. And, and to you know, to use that example of throwing the employees under the bus, I didn't write about this in the book, but there's a famous example of Herb Kelleher from Southwest. And there was this woman that just always complained and always re- wrote letters into the customer service department about this terrible flight attendant on this flight, whatever. And, and you know, after the 20th time or, or whatever, Herb basically writes her back and says, "You know, we don't want you to fly with us anymore. Please stop booking flights on Southwest, mm-hmm. right?" And that's really I mean, what does that do for all of the people who've been affected by that one person's toxicity? They're now more comfortable with the idea that the empo- that the employer has their back and so they can do the things they need to do to have the employees' back. And that's really what it's about and that's how you build sustainable customer loyalty. Throwing Throwing uh, values on the bus to satisfy one customer, yeah, mm-hmm. you get one customer satisfied. But if it's that type of customer, the one you're talking about, that will return something just because the box was dented, mm-hmm. you you probably, I mean, let's be honest, you're probably better off inviting that person to not be a customer of your company anymore yeah. and allowing your employees to focus on the ones who will be del- you know, delightfully satisfied by their performance.
1: Yep. Now, I love that. And, you know, I, I remember one of the other reasons that stuck with me is because, as I'm sure you get as a podcast host, you know, we'll get, we get a bunch of emails, good and bad. And I, I welcome both. Honestly, we've had some of the best emails are people being critical, but the ones when people just want to bitch about things that are kind of just their opinion, I usually just respond and go, well, it's free. So feel free not to listen. You know what I mean? Like I don't, you're not right. I don't care. You know
2: what I mean? (laughs) <laughs> no, or or, or or so now I'm I'm going to get vulnerable and personal, right? So yeah. I'm in the midst of launching my own book, and one of the things that, uh, you know, I'm, well, it's called under new management. We've been talking about it for the last ten right. minutes, and and one of the things that you do, and, and you know, you do it too, is I have I have an email subscriber list that is people that listen to the podcast and people who um, like my writings and et cetera, and eventually, basically, they sign up to get email updates on like here's the content that I've created and. Mm-hmm. And then you launch you turn around, and you launch a book and you go, "Hey, you know, I mean, basically what I, I'm se- yes, I'm sending people a lot of email, but you get you know every time I do, I get two or three people who respond and are like, "How dare you ask me to purchase your book?" right, right? <laughs> And I on I it like mo- uh, the, the brightest minds have told me to ignore those people. I can't keep from writing them back, right? But really, right, it's right. not even you know like I, I write back with that same idea of like, I've been sharing content for two years, yeah. right. And I'm sorry if you feel like me sharing content that I've written to self-promotion, but like you signed up for the list (laughs) presumably because you wanted me to send you that content. And now here's the way that I can eat and feed my family. It's this book, right? And if this book doesn't sell lots of copies, then I can't keep doing all of that stuff. (laughs) Right. And so, you know, I'm – a. I, apologies if I offended you, but you're clearly not the type of person who should be getting my email. I just, I, that's always wonder, and
1: I just always wonder like what goes on in that mind. And we don't, you know, not to turn it into a bitch session, but like somebody, somebody commented, they said, Oh, you know, I've listened for years, but I heard this episode and now I'm going to have to unsubscribe. And everything about that sentence was wrong. So you've listened <laughs> yeah. for years. One pissed you off. You're going to, you're forced to stop taking my free content. I don't know. Anyways, uh, that's why I love the customer isn't always right, but the, I, I was unaware of the, the kind of, uh, switch you put on it, which was yes, but how does it affect the way management deals with those frontline employees? And that really no, comes totally. down to a culture thing.
2: Totally, totally. Yeah. And and you know, and to to, to speak on our point about the podcast, about the email list, about the the guy who complains about the box being dented, like mm-hmm. Seth Godin actually does and it's not based in research, it's based in his insight, but it actually summarizes a lot of research on this about how you build fanatical customer loyalty. And it's this idea that like you can't get a loyal following until you're willing to tell some people the product's not for them. Uh, yeah, this until you're willing to say, you know what, this isn't for you. You know, Herb Kelleher's letter, this airline, we're a discount airline. And if you're dissatisfied, this is not for you. You should go with a legacy carrier Mm -hmm. until you're willing to basically say who this is not for. You can't fanatically delight the people who it is for. Mm -hmm. And it's just, you know, it's part of the game. And it stinks because we have to have difficult conversations with people for who our work is not for. But that's the way it is.
1: Well, the other thing I want to talk about is because the book is under new management, what does management mean in the old sense of the word and what you think leading organizations are doing and will do going
2: forward? Overall, you have this idea of management as an invention from Frederick Taylor, 1950, 1915, Principles of Scientific Management. And it was this idea that you had labor and you had management. Labor's job was to do tasks. Management's job was to figure out the most efficient tasks to be done and to enforce that standard and to monitor and track whether those tasks were being done, right? And that worked really, really well when labor knew exactly what to do because management had told them. But then as we move industrial economy to knowledge economy, the the sort of – the The jobs we might call management, right, that doesn't necessarily change. It just – because it's knowledge work, because the means of production move from your bicep to your brain, you have to be more involved in making the decisions about what tasks need to be done, right? And so the the power dynamic kind of shifts and management becomes more of a collaborative piece. And, you know, there's a chapter in the book called Fire the Managers, which is basically saying that there are some companies and some business models that lend themselves to the idea of self-managed teams, to the people who are doing the work, doing the work of monitoring and tracking progress and all that sort of stuff. It doesn't work for every company, but for every company that shifts from industrial to knowledge work, there needs to be a broader collaboration between the people doing the work and the people, quote unquote, managing the work. Um, because it's not it's not observable anymore. When when work gets done between someone's two ears, how do you watch that? How do you how do you measure that? How do you all of those things have to be a much more collaborative conversation when it comes to tracking, et cetera. And I, you know, I I wanted to sort of highlight that point because, and it's the reason it's called under new management and not just like let's get rid of all management because <laughs> the activities are still hugely important. And, and actually, the customer's first chapter is a is a great version of that. Like you need management. To be accountable and to provide resources to that value zone, you can't do away with it. The value zone needs management to give them the things they need to make customers happy. That doesn't mean managers' jobs are eliminated or unnecessary, but it does mean that the nature of their jobs change. It's not about frontline being accountable to you anymore. It's about you being accountable to the frontline.
1: I love that. Did you just come up with that on the spot?
2: Um maybe the front line I, I might have of... I might have said that once before but I was gonna say, sure that
1: was, that was impressive yeah we'll go with that
2: all right yeah no <laughs> brand new you heard it here first on the smart people podcast
1: so the last thing I want to talk about and I know we're we're wrapping up but um this idea of work life balance call it vacation call it flexibility or you know working from home and all that where does that fall into this into this new management theory
2: I think um I, well, actually, I think I hate discussions about this, and and here's the reason. <laughs> I'm glad I uh, asked. <laughs> I, no, I mean, I I think it's different for every person, right? So so when I was married to a medical student and we had no kids and she was studying and going to classes for 80 hours a week, had I found a job that engaged me, I'd have absolutely no problem putting 80 hours a week into it, right? Um, now I'm, I'm married to an ER doctor whose schedule is a little crazy and we have two kids which means our schedule is even crazier and I, I sort of find myself in this position where like I'm desperate to want to work more hours a week because I do have that engaging thing that I love doing <laughs> and I don't have enough hours in the week, right? And so everybody's balance is different and a lot of the policies and practices like e- email is a great example. There's a chapter on companies that ban internal email entirely or others that put sort of limits on when, when it can be sent But all of those limits aren't like you're going to get penalized if you send an 11 p.m. email. It's we're going to configure our system in such a way that if you work late night, that's fine. But you won't disturb other people. And if they need the ability to shut their their work life off until 8 a.m. the next day, they have it. And so it's really about that, about having that broader conversation with your team of people or the team that you're on. Uh, with, okay, where are our lives right now? Where is our work right now? And what does that, uh, I don't even like using the word balance, but what does the integration of those two things look like for me? Mm-hmm. Because it's different for every single person. And that's really the, I mean, the core idea in Under New Management is that in industrial economy, in Frederick Taylor's day, we figured out the most efficient way to make a product and then we asked the organization and the people in it to adjust their lives and work in order to make that product efficiently. So you had people working all hours of the night because to keep the factory running, we needed three shifts, right? Now when the pr- now when the product comes from between the two ears of the people, we need to shift the single sort of design element from product to person because we need the people to make the product. And so we need to be making design decisions based on that, those sort of people. And there are some broad things we can do that apply to all people. But in reality, every organization is different because it's full of different people. And so there's a deeper conversation that needs to happen about what's right for us, not necessarily what's right for the product because the product comes from us and what's right all of the time because we're not every company, we're our company.
1: Perfect. I mean, really, I was thinking about it the way it uh, kind of mimics my, my thought process and, and companies I've worked for. The idea being to give the people who are the asset and their ability to think and create, innovate, execute, what we talk about at Franklin Covey, give them the best space to do so and then an environment in which to put it out there. And I guess a lot of that probably comes down to the way it's communicated throughout the culture and the management. Would that makes sense?
2: Yeah, no, totally. I totally agree.
1: Dave, again, the book is Under New Management, How Leading Organizations Are Upending Business as Usual. Really incredible stuff. Obviously, extremely pertinent. Is there anywhere else? You do a lot of writing. It's fantastic. Tell our listeners where they can find you, sign up for you, follow you, all that good stuff.
2: Um, I mean, the absolute best thing to do is head over to com. Um, why? Because wherever you like to connect, Insta, Face, Snap, Gram, whatever, <laughs> it's it's all there. Um, we also have a ton of resources based not only on under new management, but on uh, the myths of creativity. And so if you're on the fence about wanting to check out the book, et cetera. I've got a ton of free resources for you there at Com. And so um, I would head over there first. And then any questions, any conversations you want to have based on this interview or based on the book or whatever. And it's freely, uh, it's very generous how to get a hold of me. It's right there. So, um, yeah, let me know. And I would love to keep the conversation going with anybody that's willing to talk.
1: Well, I'm sure you'll hear from them again. Thanks so much. And we'll, we'll talk soon. Um, you know, once things cool down, we'll have you back on the, uh, on the webinar workshop.
2: Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Awesome.
1: All right. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. All right. Have a good one.
0: Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that episode with David Berkus. His book, Under New Management, How Leading Organizations Are a Pending Business as Usual, comes out on March 15th and is available on Amazon and at your local bookstore. If you do decide to purchase through Amazon, don't forget to use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com amazon. If you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, please head over to iTunes and Stitcher and leave a rating, review, and comment over there. If you'd like to reach out to the show, shoot us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. Don't forget to sign up for the Smart People Podcast Mastermind webinar. Head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com to see all things Smart People Podcast. Stay tuned and we will see you all next week.